a lot of cases, you may have a clear regulatory pathway that says no clinical evidence is required, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you wouldn't want to collect some clinical evidence to differentiate your product from someone else's. Could you develop a post-market strategy at that early phase to say, we're going to collect some evidence against another product once there's a clearance to then say, we are better in a certain area or we have an economic benefit. Welcome to another episode of MedTech Mindset. I'm your host, Dan Henrich, and I'm Director of Marketing at SmithWise. Our guest for this show is Joe Popowitz, founder of Emergent Clinical Consulting. Joe and his team at Emergent work to optimize the clinical trial process for their clients. Joe has extensive experience in crafting clinical research strategies, both in the med device and pharmaceutical industries. Before founding Emergent in 2013, he was Director of Clinical Research for Stryker. Joe sat down with our president, Eric Sikowski, to talk about the role that clinical studies play in bringing a new medical technology to market, and how clinical data is needed not only to achieve regulatory clearance, but also to convince payers of the value of your product over the standard of care. There's a lot of really important information in this episode, especially for those listeners who may be in the early stages of their med tech product journey. It can get a little complex, so please feel free to reach out to Joe if you have questions. You can find his contact information as well as a link to Emergent Clinical's website by visiting the smithwise.com blog for this episode. Hi, Joe. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks Glad you could be part of this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Joe, to kick things off, why don't you tell us a little bit about Emergent Clinical? When did you start the company? What was the need in the market that drove you to start this business? Sure. So uh, Emergent Clinical has been in business now for coming on six years. Um, the whole focus was to optimize the clinical trial process for diagnostic and device companies. Um, so we started this as a small company to act as an extension to these teams, really helping them guide the clinical pathway. I was doing a lot of speaking at conferences back in 2013, and I realized there was a need for us to start providing some clinical advice to companies because it was one of those areas where they'd spend a lot of time on regulatory feedback or product development, but clinical wasn't always uh, an area that they were having internal capabilities because they would need some trial work or some advice and then it would go away. Um, so I gave it a shot in 2013 to start helping clients and six years later we've been steadily moving our way through this process. So. Good for you, yeah. So it, are you working primarily with startup companies or academic centers? What's the typical profile? Most device and diagnostic companies in the space are small to mid-sized or less than 50 employees, and that represents a, about 75% of our business. Um, about a quarter of the business is the larger medical device companies as well that might need some process development work or M&A help. So we help them kind of go through that as well. Okay, okay, great. So a lot of our listeners are, are trying to bring a new medical technology to the market. You know, it might be spinning out of a lab or it might be a spinoff of a larger established company, but there's something new and novel that they're looking to develop. And, you know, the clinical factors are important for them to be thinking about at the beginning stage. So I thought the way that we could structure this conversation is by setting up two examples of, of different medical device uh, medical devices sort of generically that we could walk through from a clinical um, you know, clinical study standpoint. And the first one I wanted to talk about was uh, 
a, a new surgical device. So let's say that I am with a startup company and I'm developing a new laparoscopic surgical device that have some, has some improvements over the existing existing devices in the market. And I've gotten some feedback from regulatory consultants that this is a pretty clear 510K. So in my head, I'm thinking that this, this product, 510K, I don't need any clinical studies, right? It's just a straight approval process. What, what's, your, what's your take there? It definitely depends. It's great you mentioned about having good regulatory advice because I think that's one of the, the keys for any startup company is to understand what your regulatory pathway is and what's going to happen moving forward. That said, the market definitely has shifted over the past few years and that you'll have value analysis committees who want to look at products that come into ORs and they want to know what the clinical benefit is. So in a lot of cases, you may have a clear regulatory pathway that says no clinical evidence is required, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you wouldn't want to collect some clinical evidence to differentiate your product from someone else's. So in a lot of cases, we look at it from, could you develop a post-market strategy at that early phase to say, we're going to collect some evidence against another product once there's a clearance to then say, we are better in a certain area or we have an economic benefit. So we really want to work with companies to ensure that we have a clear value proposition for them as they get to commercialization. There are also some, though, the regulatory guidance may come through and say you will need some clinical evidence. So there are 510Ks with clinical where, depending on that product classification, you would have to collect some evidence in the pre-market to then show that this product should be cleared for use. Got um, it. So, so just to clarify for me. so. Uh, when we're talking about the regulatory approval process, that 510K approval, everything before that, the pre-market clinical studies, you're saying that during those, those pre-market studies, there may be cases for a 510K when you do need to collect some clinical data yes. before getting that approval. Absolutely. Correct? Okay. Yep. But then when you get through that approval, there's very likely the scenario where you would need to be doing some comparative studies to look at how this new surgical devices performs uh, with respect to the other, the, the gold standard or the, you know, the commonly used surgical devices that are for a similar indication. Exactly. And it may not be for claims purposes, but it may be for publication purposes that you could go to a value analysis committee and say, look, here is a level X, one, two, three, you know, trial that has been published to say, this is a difference or how the, the modality of care worked for this particular product. So there is a benefit in what you would use from the commercialization standpoint to collect some evidence for that product. Got it. So the the comparative studies are are often for business factors. You know, you, you want to be you want to be showing that there's a there's a clinical benefit, obviously, but there's there's also hospital economic factors that come into play and other things that are going to matter to the value analysis committees. Is that absolutely? And we work with marketing groups even in the post market to say. What do you want this to be working from the, with the end in mind, working backwards to say, let's develop a trial design that gets you what you need in the post market so that we can help them kind of get that strategic vision. Right, right. So we talked about value analysis committees. You know, this process of getting a new medical device into the hospital has become fairly complex. Can you help me understand what exactly is a value analysis committee? So each hospital, or as, as this has gone through, more hospitals are relying on an economic assessment of devices or diagnostics or products and saying, we have limited shelf space. Why should we use this product as opposed to the other 15 products that are available in the market? 
So to that end, they've more formalized this where hey, they have you know, scientists, uh, people with a finance background to look at products and really get a good assessment of, does it make sense to bring in this product versus another product? What are the benefits or risks associated with it? And they, they have a formal assessment. Um, so we've seen that with some of our clients go through the process of having to, to get product on market saying, if I have this hernia mesh, let's say, as opposed to other meshes, why would I use this one versus another one when there are 15 options? And that's where collecting some evidence may differentiate you from some other companies that haven't collected any evidence mm -hmm. on their products. Got it. And so if back to that, this example of, you know, I've got a surgical device, it's gotten, let's say it's now gotten uh, 510k approval. Do I just look for the value analysis committee email on a hospital's website and, and email them? Or how, how do I get into the, the value analysis committee? To the hospital administration. Mm -hmm. So they're working with their doctors and then they find their inroads. We haven't had a lot of direct experience with going to the hospital administration. We're more on the supporting side of collecting the evidence and helping them through that. But commercial groups typically have some inroads. Got it. That. So it's, it sounds like the commercial groups, the salespeople, they... They speak with the clinicians and then the clinicians, uh, one or several, maybe a champion for a new product to bring it into the value analysis committee in absolutely. order to get it, you know, get it evaluated. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Great. So let's go back to, uh, you know, this, this post market concept. You know, we got it. We have a new surgical device. Uh, it's going up against an existing surgical device. Uh, how would you think about the endpoints? You know, what, what is, what are the endpoints that we would be looking at in that clinical study? So this is where we work with a team as an extension to understand what are the, the benefits of the product. Why, when you started to conceptualize this product, did you think this would be better than other ones? And that's really what formulates our idea of what should be an endpoint, primary, secondary endpoint, however it works. Because in most cases, you know, the engineers, the medical teams, they really understood. They had a good understanding of why this product was going to be better than or why we should really commercialize this product. Our job is to kind of translate that portion of what did you envision to what will accentuate that benefit from a clinical standpoint. So primary and secondary endpoints typically revolve around that. Maybe you have uh, less surgical time because it's easier to use. Maybe there should be better outcomes associated with healing or um, you know, a, a quicker implementation there's really a number of different ways, and it's really dependent on the product, mm. but we want to work with the team to understand why did you conceptualize this as a better product, and let's translate that into an endpoint story within the protocol. Got it. So so I'm still a little nebulous uh, or confused on primary versus secondary endpoints. You know, back to this surgical device example, give me an example of what you think a primary endpoint would be for this. So a primary endpoint for that may be... Uh, you know, the efficacy of the, the product. So think of it as primary endpoints are usually built to say, we want to have a claim. And, and that usually is more on the pre-market side than the post-market side, but each will have an endpoint. Well, let's say, let's say that it's a um, surgical closure device, you know, so it's used for, for closing tissue after, say, uh, an organ has been removed from a particular area. What would what would be a primary endpoint in that case? Yeah. Speed to closure, ease of use. You could see that a surgeon's application, they may have a you know an assessment of it to say how easy was it to use this product. Um, you can have very strict guidances like quality of life assessments, but to more qualitative responses to 
how easy was it for me to close as opposed to what I've experienced Got in it. the past. So the primary endpoints are directly related to you know, the output of the surgery. So, you know, is it, uh, you mentioned some of the human factors issues. Is it, uh, does the device result in an intuitive use, but then also does it, um, does it result in a very uh, robust closure or, you know, seal if that's what the device is looking to do? Is that an accurate depiction of, you know, what common primary endpoints might be? It can, and it can shift. So, an endpoint is an outcome for the trial. So whether it's a primary or a secondary endpoint, it's really a decision by the company of, is this trial's focus X? And that's where your primary endpoints would be, where you would still look at secondary or tertiary endpoints to say, these are other things that are interest that we would want to publish on or we would want to present from a regulatory standpoint. We're also going to look at this as well. Mm. Um, in the pre-market, and especially depending on if you need this data associated with a project, there's very clear guidance by product of what you need to show because other devices have done that in the past. In more new devices, let's say there's a de novo, it may not be as clear and you'd have to have some discussions with FDA potentially to determine what your endpoints may look like. Got it, got it. So pre-market endpoints are really a negotiation with the regulatory agency, whereas post-market those endpoints are determined by the company and you know to figure out what is going to be really important for the clinicians that are using the product and the hospitals that are ultimately going to be evaluating the product with respect to other devices that are on the market. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, that's that's helpful. Let's talk about the size of a, of a trial, you know. So, uh, let's stick stay with the the post-market theme. You know, we have a new surgical device. It's going up against something that's competitive. We believe that this new surgical device can result in a more robust closure uh, closure process. What what is a what does a study look like for that? You know, in terms of proving at, at a post market level that um, you know that we can produce more reliable closures and and say uh, reduce infections related to those closures. So you hit a, a nice topic about infections or reduction. So everything is driven based on a success criteria. So you'd say our expectation is that this percentage will be successful. So, you know, and in case of I was trying to reduce infections, they're typically small percentage numbers, single digits. So to show statistically significance in that case, you're going to use thousands and thousands of patients to be able to say, we reduced infection rate by 50% from 2% to 1%. Mm, because the infection rate is, is already so low. Exactly. You're, you're starting, okay. So if you have a really low incidence rate, that's going to obviously result in a pretty massive clinical. Yeah. Okay. And this is where it's really good to have a great statistician that can work with you on a power analysis because things like that, you can see how it'll inflate and adding other, you know, other criteria might change your success rates. But the important part is to understand what the end game is, so what your endpoint is, and the success rate of that, to then to be able to build a, a good power analysis. Got it. So this is, I think, a really important point because when you're picking your endpoint, you need to also look at what the incidence rate is that you're trying to affect. Because if you're looking at a multi-thousand patient study, that could be beyond what is reasonable from an investment perspective, right? Absolutely. So it sounds like when you're looking at your clinical study design, uh, you really need to be trying to identify some endpoints that you know you can really influence uh, at at 
a significant scale with a relatively small patient population. That's absolutely right. But the one interesting part is that in the post-market, you may not be building a study to show statistical significance. You may be showing it to show trending. Mm. So in a case like that, you may have hundreds of patients to be able to show we're trending towards that, but we would never be able to run the trial to that magnitude. So we collected evidence to see where did the data trend, not necessarily... So when you say sure. trending, what, is, what does that mean? Like you haven't hit full six, uh, statistical significance, but you're sort of going in that direction? Exactly. So okay. data trends towards a certain endpoint that it's in a positive way or a negative way, depending on how the, the endpoint is created. But it won't show for a p-value of you know, 0.05. It's, more, it's trended towards that, but we would have to power the study to a larger degree. Got it. Great. Okay. So um, that's really helpful. Let's say that we've, you know, we had the, we, we brought the statistician into the process and she has informed us that, uh, the trial should be 200 patients in order to really show, um, significant, um, you know, statistics, statistical significance of the, of the study. How do we understand as, as an early stage company, what the magnitude of that, of that cost is going to be from a clinical study? Yeah, there's a number of different ways to look at that. And, and you can't look at just the budget because there's a budget of cost per patient, which is important. And that definitely varies depending on the, the surgical application or the, you know, the therapeutic application of the trial. The certain cost per patients may be as low as $1,500 a, a patient. There's other applications where with a surgery and long-term follow-up, you could be in the twenty dollars to $30,000 cost per patient a year. So it really is dependent on your therapeutic application there. But you can also look at it as how do we, you know, play with the, the levels of number of investigators in the trial and we make it more efficient. So we typically work with clients to say, let's do an enrollment projection to see how many sites, doctor's offices you would need to you know, participate in the trial to then get a study done in a certain time frame and understand the costs of how long a trial would take, how much would it be per patient, things like that, so that they have a very clear understanding and can communicate that to investors, management, boards, so they have a really good control of what that clinical cost would really be. Got it, got it. Okay, but is so is it fair to say that the clinical study that is sponsored by a device company needs to finance the the surgical procedure as well as, you know, a series of follow-up visits with the patient typically? So things that are outside of standard of care are definitely part of the trial. Um, so if you have a, a bolt-on to what would be standard practice. So let's say I'm adding another product into a surgical procedure. We want to try to stay as close to standard care because the doctors are going to be comfortable with that. We want to ensure that they are comfortable so that there aren't protocol deviations, things of that nature. But the costs for the device or diagnostic company are really the things in addition to what standard of care are. So Typically, our team will work with that group to help them build a site budget. So what will be the cost for the implementation for that patient mm. and really add that into it? So that it may be things like data entry because they wouldn't typically enter that data into a database. They would enter it into their electronic health system, and that would be the extent of it. Or the follow-up visits may be different than what standard practice is. Anything like that would be a cost to the device or diagnostic company. And you would have to incur that for a trial. So mm -hmm. that's where you build out the budget, ensuring that anything outside of standard of care would be a Got allocated. It. Okay. For the trial. Okay. That's that's helpful to clarify. So it's not 
you know, if you're running a clinical study, you're paying for the entire clinical procedure, the entire surgery. Uh, it's really just the incremental costs based on the the device that you are now introducing into this pre, into this existing process. Absolutely, that's okay. the ideal situation. Okay, great, great. Hey, listeners, just a quick break to remind you that MedTech Mindset is a production of Smithwise, a medical device development firm with offices in Boston and Philadelphia. We help innovators accelerate new medical technologies along their path to market from concept all the way to commercialization. Visit us at smithwise.com to learn more. Um, let's talk a little bit about U.S. versus outside U.S. clinicals. Why would a company want to consider going outside of the U.S. for a clinical study? Historically, speed to market has been one of the areas that device or diagnostic companies have really focused on why they'd go outside of the U.S., so the regulatory pathway. Um, so in that case, the regulatory agencies that are not FDA might have a lower bar allowing you to perform a clinical procedure earlier. Uh, is that accurate? That's been the perception. Okay. Um, I have to say in the, the recent past, our interactions with FDA, they're interested in making sure innovations come to market first in the U.S. So the pathways, they've been quicker to, to review. They've been more collaborative in the process. So that perception should definitely be uh, tested with the FDA. I, I think if you have good regulatory guidance, they would head you down that in direction to say, have the discussion early with FDA, explain you know the clinical utility of this product, and see if it makes sense to be here domestically, because I think FDA is interested in, in ensuring that more innovation comes to market first in the U.S. So they've really worked with industry to ensure that happens. Got it. Got it. Okay. What, what about the costs? So we talked about timing, but is there a significant cost savings to going to uh, South America for a clinical study versus the U.S.? The perception has definitely been there as well, the per patient cost. I think if you look at it in just direct costs, you can make the argument that maybe the cost of a patient in South America might be less than a cost for patient in the U.S., but I don't think we're looking at it holistically because mm -hmm. there's service costs, there's transport costs, Travel, there's a, right. a lot that goes into play. A lot of the companies, especially that we see the device and diagnostic companies, are hands-on. They want to be there for surgical procedures if that's you know, the type of product. So they're there all the time. They are ensuring that the product is going well. In that case, there's a cost associated mm -hmm. with that. And having to find a vendor in you know, South America that could execute the trial costs associated. So you have to look at it holistically and then weigh, does it make sense? I would argue it's becoming more competitive to be in the U.S. as a whole, just to ensure that the product comes through. Uh, but you have to weigh it out and yeah. see what makes sense for your device. Great. Okay. Excellent. So let's switch gears now. We talked about this surgical device that was a 510K. I think everything there is pretty clear for me. Let, let's change over to a different application. Um, say we have a new diagnostic system. It is a non-invasive diagnostic. It's uh, you know, reading certain health data through the skin. And <clears throat> there's no inherent risk with using the device. There may be some risk with you know, the data that the device is, is generating. But this is a diagnostic device that is likely, based on regulatory expertise that we've received, going to be a de novo pathway. Mm -hmm. And we, we've been talking with some investors about this device. And, you know, there's a lot of excitement around it, but there's also a bit of skepticism around the sort of clinical merit, the clinical validation. Is this really going to be 
useful in providing clinicians the data that they need. So in that case, how do you get a study going as early as possible so that you can prove, you know, that you've you've achieved this clinical milestone, that you can get the data that you really need? So I'd start with, as we talked about getting involved early and often, it's the same situation from the regulatory side because there may be, you know, the determination of significant risk versus non-significant risk. I'd have the conversation early from a regulatory standpoint to get an understanding of what is this pathway. So whether it's you go the formal regulatory pathway and get a designation through FDA as an example. So time out for one quick second. Significant, <coughs> significant versus non-significant risk. Are, are these just interpretations? Are these defined terms? Help me understand a little bit more. What does that mean when a device is classified as significant risk versus non-significant risk? So FDA has a guidance document. I definitely recommend if you are in that device or diagnostic that could fall into significant risk versus non-significant risk, start there. But it's a question of whether there would be some detrimental impact in the long haul from a safety standpoint if something failed for the device. So even if it was maybe not a safety risk from an implant standpoint, but in this case, a diagnostic, if there was a failure for the, the data to be accurately analyzed, it may be that there's a detriment to the patient because we didn't see some health issue that would have come up earlier than how we normally treat mm. or diagnose that case. So there is a pathway that has to be assessed to say there might not be inherent safety risk immediately, but data interpretation may data be an interpretation. issue in the future. Great. So, so this is helpful. So let, let's say that this diagnostic device, it has a number of different sensors on it, but all of these different sensors independently exist. And, you know, the, the clinical can be such that you're using the diagnostic device in a hospital environment but it's redundant with other data that is being collected with these this other instrumentation that already exists. So does that uh, mean that the, the device is going to be significant risk or non-significant risk? So you have to go down the pathway to ensure, and that's where from a regulatory standpoint, yeah. I may not be the best person to go through. However, that seems like the study design that I would implement saying, we have some data that's collected in this novel way, and we have redundancies in place to ensure that these data match what our standard of care. So this, you've just basically developed what the design of the trial may look like to ensure the safety in the future from a commercial standpoint. Got it. Got it. Okay. So in, in that case where you have some redundant devices that are being used, the, the data that's coming off of this novel diagnostic device, the data may not be as likely to be interpreted, you know, um, or uh, relied upon by a physician because there's other sources of data that are being, you know, that are being captured simultaneously. Correct. And so that is likely to push it into the non-significant risk category versus significant risk with the caveat that, you know, there's guidance and regulatory process that needs to be followed here. Absolutely. Okay. Great. So uh, what about, you know, significant risk? Let's say that we really, we need to show that this device is going to um, you know, identify a novel uh, set of health data that does not exist, you know, and, and clinicians are going to be relying on this data. What does that path look like, you know, for, for getting approval to use this device clinically? Yeah, and most devices will fall into a significant risk device. So it sounds scarier than it is. It's more that there is a potential risk associated with the patient. So we need to ensure that it is safe and effective. 
And so this is essentially an, an ID or an investigational device exemption. So that is something that prior to a clearance or approval, depending on the, the classification of the device, you have a assurance from FDA that you can use this device in the pre-market to collect the evidence to prove it's safe and effective for uh, ultimate commercialization when you send in your application. Um, so that's where a significant risk device you would be running the trial under an IDE and then ultimately collecting data to get a regulatory approval or clearance. Got it. Okay. And so if I'm a, uh, if I'm the startup that is, that is building this new diagnostic device, uh, and I know that I, this is going to be a significant risk trial, do I just go straight to FDA or what does that process look like for uh, getting that significant risk status and the IDE application rolling? So typically you're in that pre-submission process at that point with FDA and you have to have a sense of what the trial would look like and things like that. So they can weigh in on does this application fit so that you can be granted the IDE. So as you're going through the process of developing the trial, that's where you would get some sense of we have a trial design. Here's what our preclinical package looks like. Here's what we've done in the past. And here's how we execute. So IDE, I want to dive into this a little bit a little bit more. So investigational device exemption. Is this for significant risk devices only or is this also for non-significant risk devices, that label? So an investigational device exemption is basically saying because this is not commercially available, we're allowing you to transport this device to different locations because it shouldn't be used in commercial or clinical applications. So it's basically FDA's blessing to move forward Okay, so I want to make sure I'm clear here. So we've got this diagnostic device, and uh, we want to do a clinical study. I say that it is um, it is non-significant risk. That's what that's what I believe. That's what maybe some of the regulatory guidance that we've received believes. So we go to in an institutional review board, an IRB, and that's that's at a hospital, an academic hospital that has an IRB. Um, what, what happens there? What are the, what are the scenarios uh, for the, the IRB? Is, do they basically just pass through the study or t- tell me about what, you know, their, their decision process? So at that point, you'd ask an IRB to designate if they believe that it is a non-significant risk. So if you believe that you have a non-significant risk device, you would go to the Institutional Review Board and say, we believe that there is a pathway for this to be reviewed through your governing body. Please let us know if you agree that this there is no risk associated with the patient that you can allow this trial to go on without an, a formal designation from a regulatory path. So at that point, the IRB will review what the protocol is and the consent documents, things that would be the trial-related materials to then designate, yes, you can move forward with this trial, or no, this is significant risk. You need to do this under an IDE. So go back to your regulatory authority and get granted that to move forward with the project. Okay, that's helpful. So... The, what about the level of information that is needed for each of those those pathways? And this may be more of a regulatory question, but you know, there's if you're if you're going the IDE route with a significant risk status, you need. I, my understanding is that you need to do a much deeper level of testing, 
you know, verification work, documentation versus the amount of, of you know, uh, testing that you would need to do for a non-significant risk device. Is that, is that true? Can you talk about the pros and cons of each of those scenarios? In our experience, um, whether it's the non-significant risk or the significant risk device, both are going to require a fairly large set of data. Mm-hmm. So in either case, you're still using it on a patient. There's still some application associated with it. So you'd have to ensure that it, there is no safety issue, that it does work to some degree, um, whether it's NSR or significant risk. Mm-hmm. So to that end, it's more about the product class and what level of evidence you would collect, whether it's preclinically or clinically, to determine this is a useful product to be available in the market. Okay. Okay, great. Now, one of the key pieces of, of information that needs to be provided to either the IRB or the regulatory authority is the clinical protocol, right? Yes. Who's writing that clinical protocol? Is that, that me, one of the you know engineers on the team, or do we need to get uh, emergent clinical to help with the clinical protocol? Who, who exactly is responsible for that? So we typically help clients write the protocol. The way we envision it is it's, it's a two-fold process. There's a medical application to it as well as the operational aspect. So we typically work interchangeably with the device company because they have a great understanding of the medical application, but we understand the clinical ops portion. So together we'll help build the framework, all the required elements for it, the things that will help them get to the finish line sooner without multiple iterations with the institutional review board or the regulatory authority, things that would be expected to be seen um, in that process, but we rely heavily because it, it has to be a collaborative effort. Got it. So in a, in a um, realistic scenario though, when should that clinical protocol start? Does that, does drafting that clinical protocol begin after the design is complete? Should it happen before the design is complete? What's the timeline look like there? We've worked with clients very early on to, to build synopses. So a, a very simple outline of what the inclusion exclusion criteria would be for patient selection for the things that you would want someone to have or not to have in the trial. Um, the endpoints that we discussed before, a simple power analysis, um, things like that, that give a sense that you have an understanding of what the trial will look like. That happens very early in some cases, and that's important whether it's you're raising capital you're having conversations from a regulatory standpoint, you're looking for strategic partners, it really conveys that you have an understanding of what the pathway looks like and what you're going to do to execute a trial. Mm. The more formal protocol should be closer to execution because things will change. You'll learn more things as you go through. You don't need the 70-page full protocol early on. But to have a handle on the synopsis as, as early as you can, I think is valuable to, co- to companies. Got it. Okay. That's great. Hey, listeners. One more quick break to mention that you can visit the smithwise.com blog to see more information about Emergent Clinical and find a link to their site where you can learn more about the clinical data requirements of bringing a new medical technology to market. If you have a great medtech story to tell, a suggested guest we should have on the show, or a topic in medtech you think we should cover, send me an email at marketing at smithwise.com or use the contact us form on our website. So I've heard of some companies taking the route of, you know, an IRB within an academic institution and then other 
uh, companies taking more of the for-profit IRB pathway, like a Western IRB or one of those uh, for-profit IRBs. Talk, talk a little bit about the differences, uh, the trade-offs associated with both of those, those pathways. Sure. Um, institutions select what IRB they will have review their products so or projects, excuse me. So in a case of a large academic institution, historically, they have their own institutional review boards. And the, the institutional review board's process is to ensure that this is an ethically sound protocol that patients' rights and safety are maintained in the project through informed consent process. There's no issues with the design of the trial scientifically. Um, so it's important that they're really the patient's advocate in ensuring that this project is uh, worthwhile and ethically sound. So larger institutions have historically utilized their own boards. Uh, lately, they've been more inclined to work with commercial institutional review boards like Western IRB and their multitude out there. The pros and cons typically, you know, an institutional review board that has a commercial application tends to be faster to review and give some process associated with it. So you'll have a Western IRB that will provide a review cycle within a week in some cases and give you a decision where historically some of the larger academic institutional review boards have taken months. They don't meet as often. They are trying. So I think things are changing and you have to assess on a case-by-case -case basis what the institution you're working with, what their IRB looks like from a review cycle, how quickly they turn it around, things like that because it will play into the ultimate timeline of the, the application. Got it. So uh, a, a commercial or, or a for-profit IRB, do they have specific clinical sites that they use, or is that up to uh, the, the sponsor of the, of the trial to determine where the sites are? So the sponsor decides which institutions they're going to use for the trial, and then the institutions decide which IRB that they would do or contracting, things like that. So it's one of the things we assess as part of our feasibility assessment in who should you work with to execute a trial. It's one of a number of things of how do they review budgets, contracts. There's a whole startup criteria that you have to understand so that you select the right institutions to ultimately execute a project. Okay. But say, um, you know, we, we went to a Western IRB or a group like that and, um, you know, is there, if there's an existing IRB at one of the sites that we would like to use, is there going to be any conflict between the in-house IRB uh, at a, you know, a large academic institution that is receiving the IRB approval from a group like uh, a for-profit IRB? So the for-profit would review the study as a whole, let's say, and then anybody who subscribes to Western would then allow them to be listed under that approval. Got it. Separately, the local IRBs can run other institutions. Let's say you had five institutions. Three can be under Western, two can have their own institutional review boards do the review. So it's, it's a bit of both you can have, and it's dependent on them to decide, do they allow for the Western approval to apply for their institution, or do they require that their own local institutional review board is the one that governs the, the protocol review? Okay, okay. So it could be a combination. But Absolutely. what I heard is that sometimes if you're using a uh, a commercial or for-profit IRB, it, it can be a faster process than going through uh, a large academic 
IRB. Absolutely. If you're looking to get a trial going, you know, very quickly. Are, are there any downsides to using a for-profit IRB? Like, is the data not not respected as highly? Uh, or are there other factors that might be considerations? No, I mean, I think they've just formalized their processes differently than other local institutional review boards. So because it's a commercial entity, they've learned how to have a customer service group and, you know, routing, scheduling uh, technology. So it's more about efficiency as opposed to the quality. The quality is good, whether it's the centralized Western IRB or a you know commercial IRB versus the local IRBs, I think that it's essentially the same quality you'll get. It's just a question of speed. Got it. Okay, great. So we've hit on a lot of topics here. We've we've gone down the five ten k path with the surgical device. Uh, we've talked about endpoints, primary, secondary, quantified the size of trials, and then we looked at the diagnostic application, more of the de novo. Um, you know, the, the, the pre-market uh, process of, of getting early clinical data. We talked about significant versus non-significant risk. This has been great. I've learned a lot here. I have one last question for you. Um, advice that you have, you know, for early stage companies or companies that have new technologies, what advice do you have on, on how they can, you know, get into their clinical study design most efficiently? So we always recommend come early and come often. So the earlier, the better. It's great to have the conversations with early stage companies, maybe that haven't gotten their round of financing secured at this point, but they have a great idea. We've started conversations four or five years ago with companies that are still not to the clinical phase because they are still working with a group like yours to help them with product development and ensuring they have the right application. Um, but there is still value in us having the conversation because they may get utility out of understanding what the clinical pathway would look like. And I think that goes for most in our industry. I think you have to build a, a really strong team around you, whether it's product development, regulatory, clinical, to ensure that you have that right structure moving forward, even if it's early, because then you have an understanding of what you need to do, what that pathway looks like, and it will be easier for you to communicate to investors, strategic partners, things like that as you develop the product. So come early, happy to have the conversation. We'd love to see technology. We got into this space to ensure that we saw all this cool medical technology come to market. So we love the early stage conversation. This is, yeah, very, very, this is great. So, I mean, it's a, it's a reminder for me, you know, being an engineer and, and often looking at problems through the lens of, of, of an engineering sort of technical, technical side that when you're bringing a new medical device to the market, it's not all about just, you know, does the design work? Does, uh, can we engineer this product uh, really, really well? But there's all of these other factors. And I think what you're representing here today, the clinical side is so important to be thinking about really early on in the process, looking at those endpoints. Where exactly are we going? What are we trying to achieve? There's a number of other factors that we, we're going to get into during, during other sessions. But uh, this has been, this has been really uh, very helpful. we we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Uh, one last thing, if companies want to uh, find out more about your company or reach out to you directly, how would they go about doing that? You come to our website, emergentclinical.com. There's an information section there. You can reach us. There's all our contact information. Um, I can put our my email address in the show notes. I'd be happy to reach out and hear from anybody out there. You know, 
questions about clinical and, and just in general. Again, I love to hear about the medical technology that's coming through. So feel free to reach out and we'll start a discussion. Okay. Thanks again, Joe. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's our show for today. If you liked it, please subscribe and leave a great review on your podcast platform of choice. MedTech Mindset is produced by SmithWise right here in our Philadelphia office. Our theme music is composed and personally curated by the Polish Ambassador. Thanks to Joe for being our guest into Emergent Clinical Consulting, and thank you for listening. I'm Dan Henrich. I'll catch you next time on MedTech Mindset.